today with Tal Ruspoli. Am I pronouncing that right? Ruspoli. 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 Here with Tal Ruspoli and two hirsute Mediterranean guys. You'll hear them in the background, undoubtedly. We're in a camper van. We are not in Spain. We're in uh, Vancouver. Unbelievably. And we're here to talk with, uh, with Tal. Tal is... Uh, say hello, Tal. Thank you for being here. Hello. It's good to be here. While I pull out my notes, this this is a very uh, unorganized, uh, sort of uh, on the fly podcast. We're in a 1976 GMC motorhome. They're classic collector items, items that are kind of there's a whole cult around them because it's the most perfectly designed RV they say in all of the history of RV making. Wow. Are they still making RVs? I mean, I know they they still exist, but has it sort of like plateaued in terms of design? Well, no, I think this was made from 73 to 78 and it's never been topped. I mean, Airstream yeah. makes nice th trailers that you pull, but this you get to drive around and... Would you like some coffee? I, I've had... I'm all coffeeed up, thank you. And we've been traveling since Los Angeles and we've made it to Vancouver and there's five of us living in here and we cook and we uh, have a editing studio and we... Uh, Patrick's in front of us here editing our new documentary called Monogamy and its Discontents and um, we have some fresh brewed coffee and a flamenco guitar what else could he ask for this what is, more do you want in life yeah they're beautiful trees outside the window uh, yeah it's pretty pretty sweet it's like a it's like a production studio on wheels absolutely yeah I actually lived in a school bus for two years that was a production studio on wheels because I gutted all the seats out of the school bus and uh, put three editing systems. This is back in 2001 when digital editing was still a bit new and you couldn't do it on laptops the way we do it now. So we bought these all these solar panels and put like, uh, you know, a RAID array, you know, with like two terabytes at the time was like the biggest hard drive you'd ever heard of. It cost like $13,000 for this hard drive. <laughs> really? Yes. It was like an array of discs and it sat in the closet and it was like really hungry for power. And we had this like, you know, old school bus that was a super high tech uh, roving digital film studio and it was called the, uh, the LAFCO bus and LAFCO stood for Los Angeles Filmmakers Cooperative. Ah, uh, right. Right. And um, it was great because... Uh, you know, we traveled around and made films and also helped people make films and introduced artists who worked Sweet. in other media to the wonders of digital filmmaking. And this was based out of Venice? 
Well, it was based out of wherever the bus was. Just right. Like, oh, you were <laughs> truly mobile. You you didn't have it in the backyard and take it out occasionally. No, we, I right. lived in it for two years, like right. traveling around and uh, and making documentaries just as we're doing now. Uh, did you make fix? Is that that was like the culmination of the of the bus uh, in two thousand seven? My first feature film uh, called Fix, starring uh, Sean Andrews from Days and Confused and Olivia Wilde, mm-hmm. uh, my ex wife. Yeah. Cool. You mentioned Olivia. Let's talk a little bit about your your family background and stuff. Because I have to say, when when people ask me, uh, you know, what sort of wild characters I'm meeting in L.A. these days, uh, your name comes up (laughs) since I met you a few weeks ago, uh, just because you've got such a fascinating background. So your your father uh, was an Italian prince. That's who hung out with Fellini. Yeah, and Dali and Brigitte Bardot and Cocteau and like these were all his his dear friends. His crowd, yeah. Uh, my father was born in 1924 and his father was a military man, was born in the one year that had, he had to fight in both world wars, you know, devout fascist from this, you know, old aristocratic family, a thousand years in Rome. And... um and my father rebelled against it very early. So imagine he was like 16 when World War II started and he suddenly, you know, started hanging out with the wrong crowd and doing drugs and just like, you know, being very rebellious. And as soon as World War II ended, he was 21, he had a huge inheritance. And suddenly he just started like this exuberant life, which then became known as La Dolce Vita. They say right. Fellini based the film on on his exploits in part. And he uh, he lived, you know, ex- very extravagantly. Said every day was like the last, uh, because he had lived through World War II, knew that everything, you know, was fragile. Had his father died in World War? II? No, but his mother died when he was nine years old. Ah, uh. so he. Um, so he lived, you know, very exuberantly and extravagantly because he was able to, and he, you know, squandered a thousand years of family fortune in uh, in one lifetime. They say. <laughs> but he did it in style <laughs> he did it in style well you know that's great because my parents sort of squandered my inheritance as well and uh but it, you know it wasn't a thousand years it was more <laughs> like they they earned it they squandered it you know good for them so but how does that feel to you i mean well, I, i'm lucky because my my mother i'm just reaching in the fridge for some almond milk for my coffee um my mother is american so i also have this you know, and she was like a hippie artist, is like a hippie artist. And um, so I wasn't raised with a sense of entitlement like a lot of people, you know, with my types of family in Italy might be born with. I came a lot to the United States where there's this real kind of, you know, do-it-yourself frontier mentality, uh, which I hope to have inherited. And I hope I'm living, uh, you know, by going on adventures like this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so I, I can I can uh, confirm we are not in what you would call princely surroundings here. Uh, there, it's, I, it's I couldn't fail to this wonderful. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, that confuses me. Too many negatives in that. I, I don't know what the hell. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, okay, so you uh, how, tell me how you, how did your parents meet? How did that happen? So, my how mother- does a prince meet a hippie chick from the states? Well, like I said, he was living a very uh, extravagant life in the 60s. You know, he was... Gunter Sachs said there were, you know, only 12 real playboys in the history of the world, and my father was one of them. Right, right up there with Casanova. Yes. Oh, the two Italians. Who, who else? I wonder who else qualifies. Well, there was Ruby Rosa was another big, like, 1950s playboy. You know, the, the, the idea was that in the... In the uh, 
that Hugh Hefner, who everyone associates with the, the word Playboy, right. actually killed the notion of Playboy and made the idea of the Playboy impossible because he he muddied it by made by making it something accessible to everybody uh-huh. and say making it something that that like um you know i mean there was all these prerequisites to being a playboy like uh, my father said you know every time they i come to america they ask me what do you do and i say about what <laughs> you know that, that I, even idea of working didn't even occur to them you know it's like they do <laughs> It's like Oscar Wilde. They they uh, they said, "Do you have anything to declare?" He said, "Nothing about my genius." <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. All right. So your father was one of the twelve great playboys of history. In history, and 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 lived outside of the just realms of normal possibility of even of intelligibility to the regular to the rest of the world. And um, and uh, and so anyway so he he this partly this and also not not having any ambition you know like the he, in america the word ambitious is used as a compliment right yeah uh, in that world being ambitious is the worst insult you could give somebody you know yeah because it implies you're missing something yeah and that you're up yeah. for climbing you need and stuff something. like that and yeah, like exactly. that you're opportunistic or right so anyway so this endeared him to a lot of very interesting people you know whether it was uh uh you know orson wells was you know my father taught him magic tricks supposedly and then uh roman polanski was another great friend of his another controversial and scandalous figure of course and um and so anyway he was with roman at a party and my mother had moved to italy because her father had become a spaghetti western actor and he was an american who moved to italy and became a spaghetti western star and he was friends with Polanski also so she met my father she was 15 and he was almost 50 typical Polanski party from the yes. sounds of it yes yeah. luckily my father liked them a little bit older 15, 16 not 11, 12 <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> wow um, anyway so, so they met uh, uh, he, he was older than my, f- uh, my my father was older than my grandfather than her father yes. yeah yeah um and then they they went to Thailand. My father was an opium addict, and so he spent a lot of time in the Far East. Right. And so he took my mother to Thai, to, uh, to Thailand when she was seventeen. She can they conceived me. And, oh, that's where you were born. And yeah. that's where I was born. Yeah. And that's how I got the name Tao. So what what did her parents think of your father? Oh, they they liked him really. Yeah, because he was such a great guy, great character, charmer. Huh? Yeah. Wow. If you can charm your way into the hearts of the parents of your. 16 year old girlfriend when you were how old is he at this 48 point? or something 48. that is like that is climbing charm mountain right there i mean that is a tough, tough no day. and then of course it wasn't a frivolous uh, you know affair they stayed together 10 years and they had my little brother and um um yes and he already had a, a, another son and his wife who he was separated from lived in the same building there's a palazzo ruspoli in rome hmm. and that's um you know we've been in the family for 400 years or something and so he lived in the main apartment and above lived his wife and so then you'd see like the paparazzi pictures of him and it would say here's prince dadaruspoli with his wife his lover his son from his (laughs) wife his son from his lover and the lover's pregnant with the second son so i was raised with this kind of very uh expansive view of what family can be and here you are all grown up, full grown man, making a film about monogamy and its discontents. Yes. So to me, it sounds like this this has been a long time coming. Um, Is there an autobiographical element to this? Yes, of course. I've always used filmmaking as a kind of therapy, 
or a way of processing, you know, what's going on in my life. So the, the, my first movie, my first documentary that I kind of, uh, you know, I'm proud of was called Just Say No, spelled K-N-O-W. Right. And it dealt with uh, drug addiction in my family. So my, my, my father, like I said earlier, was a, an opium addict for 45 years. Then it, before that, he had been a heroin addict for many years. My mother was a heroin addict for many years. Um, my little brother was a heroin addict for many years. So I have this kind of like, you know, there is a dark side to all of this and there was a lot of drug addiction. And, and so I made this movie interviewing these three generations because also... Like I said, the ages were so wildly different. So at the time, my father was 78. My mother was in her early 40s. My brother was in his early 20s. And the three of them are talking about their struggles with addiction. So it was like this kind of look at their... Uh, at how they dealt with this and how these different... You know, being a 78-year-old a, a prince in Rome or being a 20-year-old kid in L.A., uh, you know, how that affected uh, their, their addictions. Uh, yeah. Or being a single mom or... Um, so, so that was my, one of my first films, and then and then I made that turned into a feature film called Fix, um, which also was about you know a guy who was a fictionalized account of a guy who has to rescue his brother and bail him out of jail and get him to rehab, based on a true story. And um, and then anyway, so then I was married for nine years and went through a divorce and thought it brought up a lot of interesting issues of um, the state of marriage what does it do in our culture what does monogamy mean what do we what are we looking for in our relationships uh mm. and so i started this project was was monogamy uh an issue i mean if if you're open to talking about it in the divorce was that part of the no it wasn't the reason for the divorce it was more that's a more subtle thing which i think everybody experiences uh in a long-term relationship is that it can become platonic it can become people can go you know feel like they've become great friends but you know the passion goes yeah. a different direction you become and after siblings. what's that you become siblings yeah. yeah so after i think that was that was part of it and of course it's complicated um and you know more complicated than than i i probably can explain not that i i'm sure. not reluctant but um but the the idea was that i just wanted to figure out you know obviously monogamy used to mean one wife Right, yeah. as opposed to polygamy. Yeah, and and then people, you know, thought of monogamy. You know, to be monogamous means to be with one partner for your whole life, and whether that's natural or what we should, or even ideal. And then, of course, that's uh, it's changing a lot very quickly. And if you look at the now that I've started to look at the history of it, it changes a lot all the time. Yeah, and what we think people like to project backwards into whatever the ideal of their time is to be like how it's always been and of course the more that the, the, you don't have to dig very deep to find out that's not true yeah i love and, i love this phrase traditional marriage which fucking tradition are we talking about here exactly. traditional marriage <laughs> give me a break so, yeah. so so it's been really interesting to to look into this and find out you know what are unspoken ideals what our unspoken assumptions around relationships have mean about where we are and i do feel like we're in this state of transition you know i don't think it's just me i yeah. think there's like this kind of uh seismic tectonic shift happening right. yeah. <laughs> in our culture about right. what what matters what we look for in relationships and maybe there's a new kind of uh, reconsideration of uh 
these assumed values. Yeah, I think you're right. It, I often, in, it, I haven't thought of it in terms of tectonic, you know, geological, uh, in terms of geology, but I've, I've thought of it often in terms of uh, tipping point. And there's a there's a line we use in Sex at Dawn. It's um, Arthur Miller, the playwright who was married to Marilyn Monroe, who said, an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. I love that line. I think with monogamy, the basic illusion, that you know, this, this idea that loving someone means your sexual uh, uh, interest is focused only on them, that, that you have no interest in anyone else, you're, you're never going to be interested in anyone else on a sexual level, that's exhausted. Everyone knows that's not true. I think, what, you know, one of my, I'm, I'm like pathologically uh, optimistic. And I, even with my films about drug use, I've often looked at the, the, the bright side of everything. And I love the way people's struggles can turn them into, tur turn people into individuals. We don't want everybody to have a safe, you know, banalized existence, which is a trend that's happening in, especially American culture, when you see travel as we have and you see so many places look exactly like every other place and you know exactly what to expect from the Denny's or the Starbucks or you know right. and and localized things are being destroyed but then in other places there's a resistance to that right mm. so I like to kind of explore how people's struggles and you know fucked upness can actually make them who they are and make them unique right, right. so yeah. whether that's drug addiction or you know weird family structures I don't think we should just all be aiming for this one you know uh, leave it to beaver ideal I right. think that it's kind of interesting that people right. have like multiple relationships and families and you know I'm still very close to my ex-wife's family right. and of course the, the tradition would have you say like okay once you've once you've uh, ended this then we'll this terrible thing has happened and let's just push it into this dark corner and move on to the next thing right. and what I like about these kind of uh, new models that people are looking at is this kind of tribal idea that uh, maybe you know this serial monogamy and these this more open-mindedness about strict monogamy maybe uh, can create this new tribal sense right of like extended families and you know like one of our producers was saying like she is divorced uh, uh, all of a sudden you know, her she had three kids from that marriage. She's with somebody else who has kids. The 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 ex husband is with somebody else who had kids, and all of a sudden, these four different families are all vacationing together. Beautiful, right? I and love those stories. <laughs> instead of saying like this awful thing has happened yeah. and divorce is a failure of marriage and everything, right, right. it's just like these cycles. And yeah. maybe we can just like relax about it all, and yeah. we can all be friends, and we can all acknowledge this deep connection that we had, and then, and so I think that's. Well, not One that we had, that we, we have. We have. That, yeah. That's the thing. It changes, but it doesn't go away. I mean, my, my ex-girlfriend, ex, uh, I guess we'll say. I mean, we, we were sort of legally married in one country, but not in another, so it's always confusing what to call her. Uh, we were together six years. Now she's like my best friend. She's, she's you know, my sister. And uh, her husband is a great friend. And, and there's nothing that makes me happier than hanging out with them and their kids. That's as close to a kid as I'll ever have right yeah. is my ex partner's child that she's got with another guy but you know man if they ever needed anything i would be first in line to to help you know that's beautiful that's yeah. a beautiful thing yeah I, 
Uh, Margaret Mead, the, the famous anthropologist, was once giving a press conference and she was talking about relationships and someone, some journalist said, well, you've been, you know, you've had three failed marriages. Who are you to opine on relationships? And she said, excuse me, I've been married to three wonderful men, all of whom are still great friends of mine. None of those marriages was a failure. You know, fuck you. What the hell? No, it's what the it, hell? It, it, journalist. It, fuck you, journalist. <laughs> That, that should be said more in more press conferences. It should just be a fuck you journalist button someone should push. And, and one of the great things about, you know, the people ask, why are we doing this trip? We, we filmed for this in, in Europe and in New York, but now we're doing this Pacific coast. And I like, you know, I'm from L.A. all the way to Alaska. And uh, I like that we're on this margin, right? Right. Of this land and, the, and this, you know, the final frontier in America, the West Coast. And then we're going up. And, and, and visiting uh, the margins of right. how people approach these because I think you can learn a lot there, right? And I think that like without dissolving boundaries altogether, we can kind of push at them and explore that edge of what, uh, of what people find acceptable or, uh, or just the de facto place where people settle. This, that's not where we are. That's not what we're right. exploring. We're looking right. at people who, who are trying new things, you know, often successfully I wonder you're talking about uh, addiction uh, and now we're talking about sexuality and, and monogamy and stuff do you have any opinion on sex addiction you think yeah. it's a real thing no I think it's a, a, yet another attempt to like put in a box and pathologize what makes people you know alive and human hmm I think that uh, even I use the word addiction with my family and I pref I would rather uh, see an individual you know path in each of their stories than to like just label them addicts it's easy right right um so when there was a great uh jungian psychologist named uh hillman i think he's still james around. hillman james yeah. hillman the myth of analysis mm -hmm. and so my father became friends with him uh, and towards the end of his life and uh, he was saying my my son is in la and he's you know addicted to heroin and what should i do and you know hillman who was also weary of the idea of like uh jumping to the conclusion that somebody is sick or messed up right. said well you know imagine we were 500 years ago and your son wanted to go on a boat and go to america and there was no way you could communicate with him for years and he might die and but you'd have to at a certain point just accept that that was his journey right and mm. you could just love him and just hope for the best and uh oh. and and i thought that was a great way to see it because you're not going to tell somebody to stop using drugs for you you know right. if they need to go through this they'll figure out when they need to stop and then they'll and they, they'll come in and help ask you for help which my brother did eventually and you know I, I was happy to be able to in my own humble way to help him out you know but that's very different from imposing what you think is best for somebody yeah so i think it's the same with and sex you, you help if if i remember correctly you help him out by introducing him to someone who was familiar with ibogaine yes yeah, for listeners who don't know, Ibogaine's uh, an African shrub, I think, the roots, roots of which yeah, are, are used. It's a very strong hallucinogen um, that has been found to have extremely potent effects in breaking heroin addiction, alcoholism, all sorts of obsessive behaviors. Um, the the experience lasts a long time right it's like a day or two like or 30 hours yeah of the yeah. most intense like psychedelic journey that right. you can go on and it kind of hits the reset button yeah exactly it's a reboot 
and uh, it's not something you'd want to do. I've, it's been offered to me several times, and, and you know, I'm pretty adventurous in that stuff, but I've, you know, my, my feeling about hallucinogens uh, is that you have to approach them with respect, and something like that to me was to just do it for fun seemed disrespectful. Yeah, no, it definitely doesn't seem like a fun thing at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. It didn't sound like much My mother fun. did it too, actually, and she she uh, spoke very highly of the experience. But again, not not just a, not a joyride, a difficult, difficult yeah. trip. Yeah, it's something to be taken seriously. Literally, taken seriously. Yeah. Thanks a lot for listening. You can donate to Tangentially Speaking at the feralaudio.com website. Uh, you'll see a donate button. You just click on that and send us any uh, extra change you've got lying around the house. Uh, you can also get us some money by using the Tangentially Speaking Amazon.com affiliate links for your Amazon.com purchases. I get a kickback. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It just takes a cut out of uh, Amazon's uh, profit margin. So whatever you're buying at Amazon, if you go to the Amazon site by way of that affiliate link. Even if you're buying a car or a house, I don't know if Amazon sells houses, but they soon will. Uh, we get a cut of that, and it doesn't cost you a dime. So that's a great way to, to uh, redirect a little cash our way to support the podcast. Also, when you're at feralaudio.com, check out some of the other podcasts there, like Conversations with Matt Dwyer and my personal favorite, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, which is off the hook week after week with that crazy-ass mofo Duncan Trussell. Also, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. It helps the rankings, and the higher the rankings get, the more people will uh, come and listen into these uh, strange, meandering conversations we call a podcast. Thank you. Let's get back to the show now. So we opened with this beautiful flamenco guitar playing. How, how did that come into your life? Well, that's another uh, uh, passion of mine. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I love the music, but more than anything, I really, really love the uh, the, the lifestyle associated with it. The, 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 the gypsies in the south of Spain have a philosophy of creativity, and that's embodied in their way of life and their approach to their music, which really resonated with me since I started, like, I don't know, 18 years ago playing. And it's this idea that the, you, the, the boundary between life and art is blurry. Mm. Um, and that, uh, and especially between commerce and art, like here uh, in the United States, we're in Canada now, but in, 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 the, in the modern world, uh, there's this sense that if somebody is really good at what they do, then they must do it professionally for money. And if they, if they have some other work, then they must uh, not be very good at what, you know, at, 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 keep your day job, right? Right. And and in Spain, I remember this like that reading this like the, the liner notes of this CD of this very famous flamenco family, and they said uh, they were all butchers, and they said why uh, why when you could be so easily making a living with your flamenco, why are you still working up as butchers? And they said, well, only the des the most desperate person who doesn't know how to do anything else would prostitute their music for money. Right, mm -hmm. and uh, and and so they much preferred to do their their uh, their art when it sprung up naturally, when it was part of their culture, when it wasn't being paid for and put on a stage, mm. and uh, so that I, I love that, you know, and I love that in the way I play music, and hopefully to a certain degree the way that we make films. Like here we are, five of us living in this RV, traveling. There's not a set 
you know rigid agenda it's not a you know primarily commercial film it's an exploration of like life and art blending together hopefully. right yeah i could see that yesterday we we went out for a walk tao had a big heavy tripod on his shoulder and we had a sound guy with a big backpack full of stuff and we were just walking around talking to whoever we found right it was it's very spontaneous and sort of hunter-gatherer approach to filmmaking and of course the gypsies you know everyone thinks of gypsies as being nomads yeah even though in the south of spain they're not as much so uh so i've always like loved that nomadic uh, spirit that right. adventurous you know right. mixed with a rich tradition and roots so right. that's what the gypsies have like this kind of like this and then that's what I, you know i joke that this rv is like uh, a phallus and a womb because <laughs> so <laughs> we're out there that. like adventuring and kind of like uh finding a very interesting resolution to that conflict that esther perel talks about between like what we want our this like safety we want home we want predictability we want nurturing we want love and yeah. at the same time we want the unknown and we want adventure and we want passion and we want and they seem to be kind of uh in, uh, incompatible those two things and in some senses they are but in other senses like here we are in this like wonderful nurturing home-like environment and at the same time we're exploring new lands yeah and that's uh, excellent i can see that that's that's very potent yeah you've got all the comforts of home in here and yet you can just start up and go somewhere new yeah yeah, yeah. well that's that's kind of like having an open marriage you know, in the sense that it, it's that, it's exactly what you're talking about with Esther Perel, who wrote Mating in Captivity, great book. Um, the idea that a lot of people I've spoken to with open marriages, that's exactly what they say. It's that we, you know, the two of us are uh, adventuring together, but at the end of the day or night, we've got each other. Right. We've we've got our marriage. We've got our intimacy. We've got our long term stability, our comfort, our, you know, the all the things that, that people love in marriage. But then we also have the excitement of, you know, having these sexual adventures together again. Yeah, it's about pushing these limits too, you know, I don't think we can push too quickly beyond our comfort zone. Sure. But the idea that uh, it is possible to to have both a sense of adventure and a sense of like safety and security is something that's worth uh, looking at very seriously and its opposite is something worth questioning which is like people who have something for 30 years they have children they have a beautiful like partnership they have all this great uh things that they've built together and then suddenly they throw it away because one of them had an affair uh and basically, they were looking to feel alive again, which is what most people cite when they, you know, are unfaithful. Right. Uh, they say, you know, I felt alive again with this new person. So why do we need to deny that to people and then throw away something that we could have been building? And again, there's a million approaches to this. Like, right. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with serial monogamy. Like, like the fact that we have these, you know, maybe five ten year long relationships and we we exhaust all the possibilities of that and then we move to a new cycle in our life i mean that's definitely something that i don't think should be stigmatized if you say i just want to be this with this one person for now and that we'll see how it goes i mean that's another possibility sure. yeah. the thing that i've learned making this movie is that there's a million approaches to this right but what would be what's nice is if people realize there's a million approaches not in the sense that we just want everything like categorized and we'll pick option a over option b but if we can really respond to the situation and say well this is what's right for us yeah 
uh, and expand people's sense of possibility it's not a bad thing yeah and 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 also that people by realizing there are so many different approaches to these things i think people can can make smarter choices as to whom they get involved with initially uh, did you interview Reed Mahalko for this? Have you? No. You, I, I'll I'll put you in touch with him. He's he's an interesting guy. He he he's sort of a sex activist. He's he gives presentations all over. And one of the things he talks about is mating with your own species. You know, the idea being: look, some people, for some people, monogamy is a really comfortable fit, sexual monogamy, and that's what they need. And anything else is going to make them really uncomfortable, even if they are willing to you know get into a relationship because they love you so much or they want to be with you so much so they'll negotiate and but in the end they're not going to be happy like what um uh in the interview you showed me last night uh john perry barlow was talking about how he got in these relationships that you know the woman said sure i can deal with your non-monogamy but in the end she was really trying to change him you know um so what Reed says is that it's really important that we mate with our own species, that the people you get involved with are on the same page. They see things the same way you do, and then you're not going to have that essential conflict down the road, you know, which I think a lot of people, you know, they they base a relationship on sexual compatibility, for example. You know, you're really good in bed, and then a couple years later, like, well, what else is there now? You know, that that tends to wear off after a while especially if, if you're not compatible in other ways. Anyway, speaking of day jobs, you, you've had some interesting day jobs. I saw you worked on Bullworth, which was one of the... One of the I really liked Bullworth. I, I, I don't think it made much money. I, mean, I, know I think you, it did all right. It was like for, for political satire, it did all right. This is the mid-90s Warren Beatty film, yeah. uh, which was, you know, kind of great attack on An the political system. An outlandish idea. A politician oh. who tells the truth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, so I've, I've always, like, had mentors in my life, and uh, uh, I think that's a great kind of thing to cultivate, is people you look up to and can learn from, and I've I've sought those people out, and my first two mentors in the film industry were Dean Tavalaris, who's the Academy Award winning production designer for all of Coppola's films, mm. and he uh, took me on board on Bullworth, uh, and I learned a lot from him and uh, he did the Godfather films and really uh, yeah oh, I mean he was amazing and then uh, the cinematographer on Bullworth was Vittorio Storaro who did you know Last Tango in Paris and The Conformist and Last Emperor all of Bertolucci's films and a lot of Warren Beatty films so we became friends on on Bullworth and he then took me to work with uh, Carlos Saura on Tango uh, in Argentina so he became another great mentor of mine um and and you know and then in the philosophy world I, I i you know graduated from berkeley with a degree in philosophy and from uh and i studied with this guy hubert dreyfus who was another big mentor of mine and i revisited him and his ideas in my last documentary called being in the world and um then oliver stone who's been a great supporter of me and my work he just uh, he saw Fix and really liked it and gave us like a great quote for the poster and uh, you know I've interviewed him several times and then he just took me on uh, his last movie Savage as a second unit director right. so learned a lot from that experience as well old, old masters you know like I think it's very important that we have a respect for people who have done things before us there, there's a, a great kind of youthful exuberance and enthusiasm when you start out in any field but especially in filmmaking like I think everyone thinks they can just like reinvent mm. uh uh, it is such a young 
form that I think mm. there is a lot of possibility of people, you know, and the technology is changing so quickly, which opens up absolutely possibilities. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, it's very important to look at what people have done before and look very carefully at yeah. it because there's a lot of amazing things been done outside of the five movies you'll see at the multiplex. Yeah, how how was working on Savages? Did I mean, you know, where did you film that? Was that was that filmed in California? Yes, that was filmed mainly in California. And, uh, you know, Oliver's a very, he's a character. He's a very strong, you know, personality and, and, uh, very kind of bold. And I, I, I learned a lot, a lot, you know, I mean, his attention to detail and his, his, you know, obsession with every aspect of what's going on. Not, no question is, is he above taking seriously when, you know, somebody comes and asks about any tiny thing that's happening. He really looks at it and really that was like a really important lesson because it's easy to kind of you see people who rest on their laurels and are comfortable with a certain way of creating and then all of a sudden like they're above you know looking at certain uh, aspects right. because like that's been pushed to somebody beneath them right I think all, anybody who's really good at something doesn't do that like they're passionately involved and take seriously every aspect of the process really that yeah. must get overwhelming though in a, in a big production like that to well, micromanage to look at all the details it's not only micro yeah i mean it can be and i guess you know uh, is that why direct like great directors often have this reputation of being insufferable because because the stress must just be overwhelming it right? is overwhelming i think yeah especially if you are like a, a, a as obsessive as oliver stone is yeah, I mean it's 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 it takes it's kind of a madman's uh, work, and it's like a you know it's a dictatorship too. So even I think Coppola said in the making of Apocalypse Now that it's the last remaining dictatorship, true dictatorship. Mm. So everything you know ends up. Uh, uh, the so Coppola was one. curse. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and he was you know I, I worked for him too on a little movie called Jack with Robin Williams. Uh -huh. uh, so he was another early teacher of mine when I was 19. Wow. Wow. Are you an actor as well? No. I mean, I, I acted in Fix from behind the camera. It's all told in the first person. So I was filming and then, you know, delivering lines. And a couple of times I appear for a few, like, little scenes. But no, I don't, I don't uh, think of myself as an actor. Do you aspire to... Uh, I mean, you want to keep directing. That's that's your, your gig that yes. you're most interested in. So do you want to get into big productions? Do you want to be in that position where Oliver Stone is? And Yeah, I mean, I have, a, I have, a, I have a, 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 this, like a predisposition to documentary filmmaking. Like, that's what I feel most comfortable and natural doing. I love documenting the world around me, whether it's through photographs or video. or, um, But I do think that the 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 craft of making a feature narrative film is like the most it's taking filmmaking to its limits because you really do have to control every aspect of it mm. and documentary filmmaking is much more fluid and you can take a long time and you can interact with the world in a much more kind of relaxed way it's not this kind of uh, incredibly focused thing that making a narrative is so i do think the culmination of of the of filmmaking I don't know. I, no, I'm not going to backtrack on that. I, yes, I'd like to do that as well. I like Werner Herzog. He's another big hero of mine. He like, found a nice balance between yeah, he's narrative. A, he does and, both beautifully. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he seems to jump around whatever. He's a, he's a very gypsy sort of soul. I think you know he he takes takes projects seemingly randomly 
and I, I'm sure there's a method. He's German, after all. There's always a method, but but it does seem like you never know what the hell he's going to come up with next. There's no rhyme or reason that I can detect. Yeah. Yeah. Have you met him? Uh, yeah, briefly, a couple times, but I don't know him. Yeah. I'd like to. Yeah, me too. He's it's a big hero of mine. Somebody recently asked me, like, if you could have dinner with three people, you know, living or dead, who would they be? And the only one I could, I immediately thought of was Werner Herzog. You know, and then there's Einstein and Gandhi and who, you know, who knows. And also you have to think of, like, you know, what would the conversation be like? It's not just me talking with three people, right? right? It's the four of us at a table together. So, okay, you, Werner Herzog, who are the other two people you'd have dinner with? Living or dead? Oh, my God. We had this conversation not that long ago, and oh, now I'm going to have trouble thinking of it. it. No, I haven't. I don't remember <laughs> who we said. Maybe some of the people in the RV can help me out. <laughs> <laughs> These two hirsute guys? You, two hirsute, tech-savvy, at-risk youth. And, don't forget uh, Roisin. <laughs> I was leaving her out of it for her own good. Yeah. <laughs> Roisin arrived uh, halfway through the interview. Roshi's an interesting Roisin. character too. Roshin. With an N at the end. Yeah, Roshin, which is a Gaelic name. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you're. Is it, do you want to be involved in this? I, I didn't want to drag you in without having cleared, cleared at first. It depends. Yeah, well, we've got dozens of listeners, I'm sure. So <laughs> you'll, you'll be famous. Well, Roshin, yeah, Roshin and I met a year ago, and uh, we've been in a relationship for a year, and it's very interesting to explore these issues, you know, with somebody at the beginning of a relationship. I think it's been yeah. very, it's been, you know, a wonderfully... Um, uh, enlightening experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Well, kudos to you for for not shying away from it. You know, I think a lot of people do, especially early in the relationship, where there's no urgent need to talk about this stuff. You know, and so you don't. But but I, what I find one of the things I find really interesting about you too. We've already talked about your sort of aristocratic background and all that. And Roshin comes from a very different world. Yeah, like like you two embody some sort of class struggle, <laughs> right? Roshin's father is Mike Davis, famous author uh, specializing in, in urban issues and very working History. class, uh, mm -hmm. sort of, Mar is he a Marxist? Does he consider he himself Marxist? Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I yeah. like to joke that that I mean we we have a good relationship me and Mike and he said he he said uh, <laughs> he signed a book to me saying uh, I, I think uh, quoting uh, Bakunin or one of the great anarchists saying. Uh, It'll be a great day when the last uh, uh, aristocrat is strangled in the entrails of the last priest, <laughs> or the other way around. <laughs> but I like to joke that that um, uh, you know, if he saw the state of the Italian uh, aristocrats, uh, you know, financially and like, right. <laughs> that he would start like fighting for their cause as well. Because do a fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> I highly doubt. That. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the crumbling. What was it, what was it that? Uh Estates. That he said to Jean when we first met. Oh yeah, so the woman who introduced us, uh, uh, you know, he called her up the next day and said, "Oh my God, is it true that he's a prince?" And she said, "Yes." And he, and after a long pause, he said, "Well, I guess better a prince than a Republican." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's very good. That's very good. I, I had something similar when I met my my ex's parents for the first time. He. He was a war refugee from the Spanish Civil War and a uh, very avowed Marxist, very uh, hardcore anti-fascist, you know, and he's Catalan. 
and, and there's a big history of, uh, you know, th hundreds of years of, of uh, fighting between the Catalans and the, the Spanish. So anyway, he, he, we went out to dinner and he thought I was just some American shithead, you know, reasonably. Um, but we talked a lot and, and after a while he realized like, wow, I, I understood something about American foreign policy and, and the role uh, that America has played in the demise of the, the world. And uh, later he said to his daughter, well, at least he's not from Madrid. <laughs> like, yeah, fathers looking for the bright side. But I think that, um, you know, in all seriousness, the Italian aristocracy has no power to be fighting against anymore for real i mean you know it's a lot of uh people trying to hang on to a tradition that as you know being assaulted from both sides from uh, you know the type of leveling that we were talking about earlier of like you know the walmartization and mcdonaldization of culture and my father was very intent on saying even in the drug issue like he distinguished between you know cultured drugs whether it's drinking wine at the table in Italy or France or you know hashish in North Africa or the chewing the coca leaves in South America uh, the opium in the Far East like yeah. these are rituals that are you know thousands of years old that are integrated into the, 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 the practices of a culture and that we should preserve those practices because if you don't they're replaced with something much worse so the coca leaf becomes the cocaine the opium becomes the heroine you know like all of this becomes uh once if you if you divorce it from its culture mm -hmm. uh and you look for efficiency in all these practices let's step outside of drugs and think of food even you know like right. the, the, a great meal is not efficient you know it takes time to cook it and you sit around and you eat it and you, it has all these great benefits of bringing people together and yep. making you grateful for the land and grateful for your your tradition and your culture and all of these things mcdonald's tastes the same all over the world and you right. know what you're going to get it's safe it's efficient it's fast it's cheap it's all of these things that you think might be good right um so anyway so i think that what I inherited from my father's family and my mother's family and what Roisin also has is, you know, a sense of wanting to fight the the uh, the banality of a life lived according to just like safe expectations. Yeah. Right? And, Milan Kundera uh, called it the uglification of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what brings us into this, you know, funky old RV and traveling up the coast and yeah. living five people in a tiny little space. And, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's a sense of like that there's possibilities beyond this, the, the very limited sense of what makes sense, you know, li limited scope of what it makes sense to do uh, for 90% of people, especially in America. And, uh, and another nod I'd like to make is to my former uncle-in-law, Alexander Coburn, who just died and had the most incredible funeral I've ever been to outside my father's, <laughs> was also epic funeral in, in the castle another story but um I, we were driving to petrolia where he lived in the lost coast of california and it was like two and a half hours through these like curving winding roads into this other completely other world so far from the strip malls and so far mm. and i realized that another great mentor of mine what he taught me was you know we have a duty to kind of uh, show people another way to look at things and another way to live 
and uh, so just just going on this journey to where he lived to his funeral was a way of kind of like stepping into his world his and his world, way of yeah. seeing things yeah. and um i hope that with my work i'm able to do the same thing like when you look at the photos or the films that i make that you see like another possibility of a way of looking at things right beautiful has it ever occurred to you your father might have been a closet marxist well he was he was very radical in his politics you know like he definitely considered himself a radical i don't know if marxist would be right because i don't know there would be a certain hypocrisy probably in a a prince being a Marxist, well, but, <laughs> but, but unless he was going to just, uh, you know, uh, assume a totally different lifestyle. But you know, he believed in in, in freedom and legalization of drugs, and yeah. in, uh, in you know, he obviously had a, a he had a compassionate sense. He didn't have a sense of entitlement. Uh, he was felt very lucky for what he had been born with, and what, but he didn't want to disavow it either. Well, so. but he but he also didn't really want to protect it and preserve it. He squandered it. This is true. <laughs> Which is sort of what a Marxist, well, not a real serious Marxist, but at least somebody who did. A playful, a joyful, a playful. A joyful Marxist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. So, is that, listen. Is that what the rich should do, maybe? Like, instead of saying we should attack them and, and kill them, just encourage them to waste all their Spend money? Spend it. Spend <laughs> it. Exactly. Yeah. I remember reading a, a, an article about a, a guy who inherited, I think it was about $20 million dollars. He was from. He wasn't any aristocrat. He was from Indiana or something. His parents had some business. He inherited the money, and so he thought, "Okay, I'm, let's celebrate. I'll, I'll take some of my friends. We'll, we'll charter a jet. We'll fly to Monaco, and we'll spend a couple of days in Monaco, have a good time, and go on with life." Right. So by the end of the couple of days in Monaco, all twenty million dollars was gone. No way. Yeah. True story. Yeah, he got caught up in the casinos and the coke and the whores and you know whatever 20 million bucks gone and they said to him how did it happen and his response was gradually at first and suddenly at the end <laughs> yeah you can apply that to anything that, that's universal the swiss army knives of observation all right so at, to end this if you could not be a film director if you couldn't do this what what other life would you would you choose well i mean you know i already see doing like photography you know obviously that's another i could do that uh oh wait we never got your your dinner companions i know i kind of avoided it on purpose (laughs) i tried to redirect because i couldn't think of anybody so you Werner herzog all right let's limit it they have to be alive two other people alive yeah guys do you have any uh suggestions for me what do, you, what do you think? Well, group think. John Waters. John Waters. Hey, wouldn't it be great David if you, Lynch? If you pick John Waters up hitchhiking, do you um, heard about that? Right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. To get him in the movie. Oh, that would be yeah, great. Yeah, I think yeah. that'd be great. Yeah, John, if you're listening, give give us a call. Um, we no, I, I I one of my favorite places that's also very off the beaten path is the Salton Sea in Southern California. Yeah, it's this kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, no man's land. Uh. And when Roisin first saw it, she said, uh, I love it. It reminds me of my two favorite things, John Waters and David Lynch. And uh, mm. so maybe, I think, maybe let's go with three directors. Let's go have dinner with John Waters, David Lynch, and Werner Herzog. I think that would be a fun little <laughs> <laughs> soiree. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to be the waiter or waitress. That, that would be a, a tough gig. Yeah. And, uh, and then maybe Terrence McKenna and... Uh, 
Oh God, he never. Yeah, if you had the two of them, you'd never. No one else would have a chance to talk. That's true. (laughs) Two Irish loudmouths speaking as one. I'm allowed to say that. I think. All right. Thanks a lot for doing this. This is great. Anything else you want to throw in there? Well, hopefully that you know. I don't know when this will be going out, but we we do have a a, a website for the movie Monogamy and Its Discontents dot com, and you know, pay a visit uh, and yeah. And if you don't edit me out of it, I'll be in the film somewhere. Oh, you'll definitely be in the movie. Christopher Ryan is one of the great interviews that we've uh, done. (laughs) uh, In addition to, you know, uh, Esther Perel and uh, Diana Adams, who's this incredible, you know, alternate family, alternative family lawyer in New York. Yeah, she's great. I mean, we have over like 50 interviews with all the experts uh, if there isn't such a thing yeah. in the field yeah. <laughs> maybe we're all amateurs to a certain degree of course because everyone uh, the great thing about this movie is that it does pretty much apply to everybody everyone has a, a, a stake in it everybody wants to uh, is looking for a way to get along with each other yeah in a meaningful way yeah what's more important than, than this stuff yeah alright great well thank you very much I don't have any more questions it's been it's been great alright thanks alright just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Send it for a headstone Soft touch, why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a bird cage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up or give it a rest? You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time? Think about an obligation, running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.